0: If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of BradburyMedia.co.uk. Hello, and welcome to another Bradbury 100, and this time it's another in my series of chronological Bradbury. And we've reached the year 1942. You may recall in previous episodes, we've looked at Ray's amateur stories leading up to his first professional publication with the story Pendulum, which was published in 1941. And once we'd reached that point, I said that Bradbury was now a professional and there would be no looking back. And it's true, because every short story he published after that was published in a professional arena. Ray had had three pieces published in 1938, five in 1939, nine in 1940, six in 1941, but in 1942, his first full year as a professional writer, he only had two pieces published. So actually this is gonna be quite a short chronological Bradbury episode. Now, I had thought about combining two years together, but when I looked ahead, I saw that I may well end up splitting 1943 into two parts, because that year he publishes no fewer than 11 stories. And there's no let-up, by the way. In 1944, he publishes 19 stories. So Ray gets very busy in the 1940s. But for some reason 1942 is a relatively quiet year because it just so happens that only two pieces, professionally published, came out in that year. But those two pieces are significant because of where the stories were published. Because in 1942 he appeared in Astounding Science Fiction and in Weird Tales. Astounding is important because it's probably the most prestigious of the pulp science fiction magazines of that time, at least. Astounding had been running for a number of years under the editorship of F. Orlin Tremaine – glorious name, that one – before in 1937 stepping up a gear when John W. Campbell Jr. took over the editorial control. Now, Campbell is often credited with being one of the key figures who shaped American science fiction, bringing a serious scientific approach to science fiction storytelling. And Campbell was very closely associated with a number of his star writers, such as A.E. Van Vogt, uh, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and so on. Ray probably didn't have much serious ambition to join that particular roster of writers, because he never was really a very scientific science fiction writer. And as it turned out, he would only appear three times in the pages of Astounding. It just wasn't his kind of magazine. And in all three appearances, by the way, his contributions were, shall we say, slight... That first appearance of his in 1942 was a piece called Eat, Drink and Be Wary." And if you go to the show notes on my website, uh, bradburymedia.co.uk, I'll give you a link to view the original appearance of this story. It was a very short piece, just a couple of pages, and Ray actually submitted it not as a standard editorial submission, but as a competition entry. Campbell had introduced a section of Astounding called Probability Zero, and this was intended to be a testing ground for new writers. And Ray's contribution is very slender. It's a a humorous piece in keeping with much of what was published in that Probability Zero column. And I suppose there was a danger, because Ray cut his teeth on humorous anecdotal stories when he was an amateur, there was a danger that he might be pigeonholing himself as that kind of writer. Fortunately, that didn't happen, and Ray didn't come to be known as just that guy who writes humorous vignettes, but he became a proper writer, as we know, of course. Nowadays, Eat, Drink and Be Wary isn't very widely available. It's never appeared in any of Ray's own books, and it's never been anthologised anywhere, So the only place you can find it is in the original Astounding Science Fiction from July 1942 or in the Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury, a Critical Edition, Volume 1. Strangely, for such an unloved and unwanted story, it's still in copyright, so I can't read you the whole thing without getting permission to do so. But I can give you the first paragraph as a, a taster, and this is how it begins. Believe me, Doc, believe me, I ain't no ordinary ha-ha, ho-ho, he-he, Don't marry me to that straitjacket. Listen, I got problems. I'm in a bad way, let me tell you. Now it turns out that the narrator of the story has been invited to a banquet by the Venusians. And this banquet is no ordinary banquet. It's going to last for about two weeks. So the narrator goes to Professor Clopt, who is a specialist in Fitzgerald contraction theory. Now, that's a real thing, by the way. Um, it's part of relativistic mechanics, relativistic physics. Uh, and in the story, Professor Clopt makes a special belt for the storyteller, uh, which he wraps around his stomach, and it's a contraction belt. I think I could do with one of these myself. Uh, It basically allows him to eat constantly for two weeks with apparently no ill effect. And uh, the reason for this is because when he flicks a switch on this belt, his stomach slips into the second, third, and fourth dimension. So, basically, the idea is that his stomach is moved at high speed in some higher dimension, and then, according to the theory of relativity and a lot of hand-waving, it contracts because of that speed and because moving objects get smaller in relativity theory. Hmm. Trouble is, the narrator is afraid of what might happen next. What if he takes the belt off? What will happen to his stomach? Well, we find out in the final lines of the story that he's actually paying a visit to a doctor who is going to take the belt off him, and the narrator is terrified of what's going to happen. And the story ends with just two words, stop, stop. So this story, Eat, Drink and Be Wary, would not have been out of place in Ray's own fanzine, Futuria Fantasia. It's, well, arguably a little more polished, than some of those really early stories of his, and it's arguably a a tiny bit more scientific because it is playing with this, this real concept from relativistic physics, but it's trying to have its cake and eat it by both using physics and making fun of physics, kind of suggesting that Ray's heart really isn't in scientific science fiction. And as I say, he only ever made two more appearances in Astounding. And we'll get to those when we get to the year 1943. Ray's other story from 1942 is also significant because of where it was published. And that is Weird Tales. And this is in November 1942. Once again, if you go to the show notes on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, I'll give you a link to view the original appearance of the story. Ray went on to have a very successful run in Weird Tales. He published over 20 stories in that particular pulp magazine. He started off as a complete unknown in their pages, but over a number of years he gained a reputation for being able to write quality stories. Uh, what John Eller has referred to as off-trail weirds. And these will be stories that you may know. uh, The crowd, the wind, the scythe, all of those sort of things. And I think it's fair to say that with Weird Tales, Ray found his first real home as a writer. It was the first magazine where he was being innovative without being cramped by the expectations of the editor or the publisher or the readers. So what was that first Weird Tales story? It was The Candle. Now, this is probably not one of his best Weird tale stories, but it's certainly a good way for him to get started in that magazine. By all accounts, he struggled with the story, particularly with the ending, and it was actually his friend Henry Cutner who helped him out by writing the last 200 words of the story. Kuttner didn't take any credit for this, it just appeared under Ray's byline, but Ray did acknowledge Henry Cutner's input. Ray presumably was not particularly proud of the story because he never included it in any of his own books. It was once anthologised in 1976 in a Peter Haining book called The First Book of Unknown Tales of Horror, and it is collected in The Collected Stories of Ray Bradbury, A Critical Edition, Volume 1. So what can I tell you about The Candle? Well, let me tell you what my friend, the late William F. Touponce, wrote about The Candle. This is from his introduction to The Collected Stories. He wrote... It dwells too much on the literal cruelty of cat murder. Uh, The story illustrates Bradbury's metaphorical ability to evoke poetically an object that gazes back, a pastel blue candle worked in the figure of a young naked woman with the serene face of the Lotus Buddha, endowing it with a seductive penumbra of elusive supernatural suggestibility So I think Bill Touponce makes the story sound quite intriguing. This is how the candle begins. Under other circumstances, it might have been idle curiosity that caused Jules Marcotte to pause before the little hardware store window. But tonight it was a cold lump of hopelessness and anger knotted in his heart. It's quite a beautiful beginning with Jules looking at and through the window of a store. And Ray manages to summon up a cold winter wind. It's very atmospheric. And soon comes the weirdness of this candle, which Jules Marcotte becomes transfixed by. The proprietor of the shop somehow senses that Jules Marcotte is a troubled soul. And this ties in with an inscription at the base of the candle, which says, the man who will in trouble be soon surely sees the light in me. To which Jules replies, well, how do you know I'm in trouble? And by so asking that question, he kind of implies that he is in trouble. And the proprietor says, it's a special candle. He says, what you do is you light it. You wait a few minutes and then three times you breathe the name of the person you wish to destroy. And this done, that person will die immediately. And the proprietor demonstrates it because Marcotte is a bit sceptical, as you would be. But the shop owner uses it to uh, kill a cat. That's the cat murder that Bill Touponce was referring to. Marcotte is impressed by this, and despite the candle having a price tag of $3,000, he thinks he must have it. So uh, he steals it. He knocks the proprietor unconscious and nicks off with the candle. Now, this is where the story gets a little bit convoluted, a little bit clunky, because there's a story within the story. Marcotte gives the candlestick to his wife, who he explains is divorcing him, and who plans on marrying another man, somebody called Eldridge. And somehow Marcot expects his wife to use the candle to kill Eldridge. And I think this is where Ray probably got stuck with the story. He wasn't really a plotty type of writer. So, what to do with this situation, how to resolve it. So as we get to the ending, which, remember, is Henry Cutner's ending, because Ray didn't know how to finish the story, we find that Jules has given the candlestick to his wife and he's put in a little note with it that deliberately misstates how the candle can be used instead of telling his wife the truth that if you repeat a name three times, that person will die. He instead tells her that what you should do is repeat the name of your beloved three times. So his intention is the wife will light the candle, say the name of Aldridge three times, and that will cause Aldridge to die because Aldridge is her current beloved. Got it? I'm sure you're probably way ahead of me in working out what actually happens. Instead of this, it turns out, ironically, that Jules Marcotte is still her beloved. She's just recently been badly treated by Aldridge, it turns out. And so, ironically, she lights the candle and she says the name of her beloved, Jules, Jules, Jules. And the last line of the story is, the candle flame flickered. So, as with a lot of Good suspense stories or stories with a twist, we are left to imagine for ourselves what's happened, which of course is that Jules is now dead. It's not so bad an ending given the setup, but I do think that the setup is more poetically written than the ending is. And the twist is a little bit obvious, a little bit clunky. And so I can see why Ray didn't ever have this story reprinted. But nevertheless, it's a decent enough story for an issue of Weird Tales in 1942. So that's it. Those are the only two stories that Ray had published in 1942, his first full year as a professional writer. Don't forget, if you go to the show notes on my website, I'll give you a link to view the original appearances of the stories that I've covered in today's show. In the following year, 1943, Ray would have many more stories professionally published. So the next chronological Bradbury that I do will cover that very busy year. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Bradbury 100. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk.